So hey everyone, um, my name is Shruti. I'm Navneet. And I'm Abhishek. And together we are in SciComm, a group of scientists who are very passionate about good science communication. Um, you can find us on Twitter under the handle InSciComm. And we also write um, articles in a blog called scyblabber.wordpress.com. So recently we had a single article on um, a new genetic modification tool called CRISPR that's actually currently up on our blog. Go check it out. Um, this is our first podcast and it's a follow-up to that work where we will talk more in detail about the science, the laws and the regulations of genetic modifications in general. So why do we need to talk about the science? Why are words so important? Isn't it enough that scientists just do the work in their labs and don't talk about it? Well, no. It is uh, important that scientists talk about the work they do and uh, the implications of their science in the real world. Uh, this is particularly important for uh, genetically modified organisms because the very definition of what is a genetically modified organism is being changed. Right now, governments around the world and regulatory institutions are trying to juggle and decide what is and isn't a genetically modified organism. And uh, some of you may think that this is not that big a deal, but it is. Uh, because if something is classified as a genetically modified organism, then it is subject to a lot of important safety checks. Uh, for example, according to current laws in the European Union, uh, if something has been uh, made into a genetically modified organism, then the safety of the new trait that is produced in that organism has to be assessed. Uh, toxicity studies have to be carried out and uh, any unforeseen side effects uh, have to be checked out. So therefore, let's uh, begin with defining what a genetically modified organism is. So the European Commission defines a GMO as, and I quote, um, a genetically modified organism means an organism with the exception of human beings in which the genetic material of the organism has been altered in a way that the resulting alteration does not occur naturally by mating and or by natural recombination. So in simple terms, um, we are first talking about non-human beings. And uh, because every organism is capable of modifying its uh, genetic material by natural means. You know, like having sex. Um, so there are other artificial methods which are uh, used by scientists to modify uh, the genetic material of an organism. So if such a method is being used uh, to come at a product, um, then that crop or that product will be termed as a genetically modified organism. But we'll find out later on that what you call natural and unnatural is all weird and they're all being defined variously by different people and different organizations. Right. So regulators who are dealing with the assessment of genetically modified crops, they generally support a position where the plant phenotype, which arises from the application of a genetically modifying process, should be the focus of safety determinations. However, what we have found is that there are several differences between governing statutes and various national and international bodies. And therefore, there is a tendency for the process used in genetic modification uh, to determine the path to regulatory approvals rather than the product in question. Um, so before we go any further, we should also define two related terms, uh, such as the genotype and the phenotype. The genotype is basically um, 
the entire genetic information of an organism. Now, when when that genetic information is uh, used to arrive at a product of a gene, then the resulting product of the gene, uh, which can be a protein, um, is then termed as a phenotype. So an obvious example for this is a gene called tyrosine hydroxylase. Uh, the resultant of the uh, action of this gene produces a protein called melanin, which gives you the color of your skin or the color of your hair. Um, another example could be the cry gene, which is produced by the uh, bacteria Bacillus thuringiensis. Um, the result of the cry gene is that it produces a toxin called as Bt toxin, uh, which inserts itself into the gut of an insect pest and uh, therefore leads to the insect pest uh, dying. Uh, this provides the crop um, which carries the Bt toxin uh, with a protective me mechanism by which um, it can ward off uh, many of these pests. So Navneet just talked about what uh, genotype and phenotype is, uh, but let's talk about the basics first the chemical nature of all genetic information in every single living organism uh, is this molecule called DNA, uh, deoxyribonucleic acid. In nature, DNA or genetic information is modified all the time. We call that mutation. And mutations happen all the time. They can be very small, so they can produce a very small change in the gene or genomes, or they can produce very large changes. Uh, but the important point is this happens in nature all the time. There are many ways in which these mutations can happen in, in nature and I can give two examples. Um, one kind of mutation happens because um, of these genetic elements uh, called transposons. Uh, they're called jumping genes because they jump around inside a genome and cause a lot of damage and mutations. Uh, a scientist called Barbara McClintock studied them first and she found out that uh, the kind of mutations that transposons cause change the color of corn kernels. So instead of the bland yellow corn kernel that you see all the time, there are corn kernels that have different colors, and this is because of transposon mutations. Uh, another kind of process uh, in nature that results in mutations is uh, polyploidy, where a single cell in an organism can contain many, many copies of its genome. Usually cells have one or two copies of the genome, but the polyploid organisms I'm talking about have something like 23 copies of their genome or even more. Uh, a lot of seedless fruits uh, that we eat today like banana and grapes are examples of polyploid organisms. So, mutations happen in nature, they happen all the time. We eat a lot of things that have a lot of these mutations. But these modifications, these mutations that happen in nature aren't always safe just because they are natural. Uh, some plants uh, in ancient times might have undergone mutations and by chance they ended up producing toxins. These plants are now called poisonous plants and we avoid eating them. So what I'm trying to say is all natural things are not automatically safe. Also because uh, a lot of these uh, processes that allow for mutation happen in nature, scientists, biologists studying these processes uh, end up synthesizing these same uh, proteins, enzymes and all uh, things and make genetic modification tools or techniques that are used to make GMO uh, crops these days. So just like how natural mutations and the processes that 
produce natural mutations aren't automatically safe or unsafe. Any genetic modification done by scientists doesn't automatically result in safe or unsafe products. It depends on the kind of change that you're making. So every time someone makes a genetically modified organism, the end product, the crop or the plant or the animal has to be tested to see if whatever new thing has been produced in it causes toxicity to humans or not. So the most um, GMOs that people have a problem with are crops. Um, some examples of crops are rice and wheat and cotton and all these crops as we know them today are nothing like how they were uh, millennia ago. They were actually just weeds and grasses that were neither super nutritious uh, nor super useful to anyone. But somebody in our ancient hominid family realized that they weren't completely useless. Um, these people chose the best kind of crops and the best kind of weed and kept it growing over multiple generations. They kept selecting for the most useful weed children, in this case, children of the corn. <laughs> Um, over a long period of time, humans domesticating weeds, uh, domesticated a lot of weeds and transformed them into crops. So what we did was basically select for weeds and grasses with mutations that made them very easy to grow, that produced lots of tasty fruits and so on. Um, the final point of all of this is that we have been genetic engineers without even realizing it for years and years. Um, the only thing that has changed now is the method we use for genetic modifications. So apart from um, crop domestication as a means of uh, generating superior crops, um, we also used a technique called hybridization. And this involves crossing related species with different advantages and then selecting for one which has the cumulative um, advantage. So for example, a plant with disease resistance would be mated to a plant that was high yielding. And then you could select and grow the children from these plants that had the qualities of both the parents. This process involves multiple cycles of breeding and selection, and so therefore is slow, as, as in it takes several years, but also this process is imprecise. You can never select for only specific genes uh, in the children. Um, so to tide over these issues, um, in the 80s and 90s, um, certain genetic modification techniques were developed, and these were microinjection, um, or bacterial or viral mediated insertion of foreign DNA. Um, in either of these cases, um, people used pathogens uh, such as bacteria or viruses uh, that carried specific foreign DNA sequences and these were used to infect um, crops or the genetic material of crops and then uh, in turn these uh, transferred the genetic information into plants and thus these came to also have foreign DNA from the plant pathogen. Um, so because of these issues, um, there were several um, questions raised regarding the safety um, of these crops because they also contained uh, viral, DLC, viral DNA sequences. Uh, we now have uh, access to new breeding techniques as they are called or NBTs. Um, and the names of some of them are zinc finger nucleases, uh, CRISPR or talons um, and, and so on and uh, these are all synthetic means of achieving modifications um, in, in, in a crop. Uh, these are very precise, they are very quick to achieve in the laboratory and as long as these new breeding techniques are used 
only for removal of DNA from an organism, they do not leave traces of any foreign DNA. Um, due to this, some people have argued, argued that these crops are therefore non-genetically modified organisms. And so we have reached a position where new breeding technologies are being used um, in a way to escape genetically modified organism level regulations. So what we have here is a situation where the laws and regulation haven't kept up with scientific progress. Laws were made when all genetic modification left genetic traces. For example, if bacterial pathogens were used to do genetic modification, then the GMO plant would have traces of bacterial DNA left in its genome. But uh, these new breeding techniques, uh, these new genetic modification techniques are better at not leaving any traces. So regulatory agencies are falling back on outdated definitions. As long as you don't add any new DNA, so you just delete genes and you don't leave any traces while doing so, some organizations are saying that the resultant product is not a GMO. But from a biological viewpoint, we think that such organisms are indeed GMOs. Genetic information has changed. Remember, we deleted a gene and removed it from the genome. There are a lot of ways in which even removing a gene can affect other genes in the same genome. So just deleting one gene can have very complex and previously unintended consequences because of intergene interactions. So we have to check what removing a gene does to the overall safety and toxicity of the plant and all the products that it can make. This also means that we need a lot of basic research on plants to know what all those interactions are between different genes in their genomes. But many countries these days don't give a lot of support to do basic research or they demand that more of their scientists work in research that has direct applications. What this means in practical terms is it's a lot easier to ask for money to research how to make juicier strawberries, for example, than it is to ask for money to research how various genes interact in the strawberry plant genome. So the bottom line is that different countries have very different policies regarding how they define GMO, um, how they control GMO uh, in their markets, and, and they have multiple regulatory organizations that have some authority that allow or deny GMO um, to their public. They also use completely different parameters to judge what exactly a genetically modified organism is or isn't. Um, the sad part is most of the regulation is left over from much older laws and all this regulation, because it's based on older science and older results, it can't deal with the new advances that we have today in genetic modification and genetically modified animals. So the bottom line is that all these organizations need to update their rules. They need to, they need to invite more scientific experts to clarify um, the science behind the modification uh, and the genetics and they need to set up more um, safety checks and they need to enforce all these safety checks to make sure that um, the GMOs are regulated very tightly. So our overall perspective on this issue is that GMOs, genetically modified organisms, crops, plants, all those things are necessary. Remember, um, we live in a world where there are a lot more humans now than there were before. Uh, we need to supply them with necessary food, nutrition, um, increasing crop yield, um, making crops 
that are resistant to pests and lots of adverse conditions. Like flavor saver tomatoes, which were uh, resistant to being uh, to to rotting, and so therefore they increase the lifespan of the fruit on the shelves. Um, yeah, like Namit says, um, and also uh, some GMOs were made to make uh, staple food groups more nutritious, like golden rice, for example. Um, so. Uh, there are a lot of countries in the world where uh, children have vitamin A deficiency, which leads to night blindness and other problems. Um, so there was a GMO made called golden rice, which basically incorporates two kinds of genes uh, that are important for the production of vitamin A in rice. Um, so people eating rice as a staple food crop uh, can get increased vitamin A in their diets and prevent deficiency. But the key point here is that um, just eating golden rice is not going to cure you uh, 100% of your vitamin A deficiency. So the, the the key point is that you have to have a balanced diet. Vitamin A is a, is a fat-soluble vitamin. So if you just eat golden rice and not have adequate fat in your diet, that rice that with the vitamin A is just going to pass through your gut and get out of your body as fast as it came in. So science is is not just the big picture. There are lots and lots of tiny points. There are lots of things you have to consider before actually making a huge decision regarding GMOs. Exactly. GMOs are not intrinsically good or bad. It's how we use them that's important. They are a work in progress. Um, science alone cannot solve all the problems of the world, but neither can unscientific laws and regulations which are made more out of fear than out of understanding. So laws should be in place but they need to be based on good science and full information. We want a unified set of scientifically sound laws and regulation to control GMOs. Ultimately, transparency is important. So that's what it brings it down to in the end, um, that firstly, the people need to care about what the GMO regulations are. Um, and this is important because um, many companies want to just get away without having to label their products or uh, the crops that they are genetically modifying. And uh, it is important that even if a plant has been uh, biologically altered using a new uh, breeding technique or NBT, uh, it should still be, uh, it could still be declared as a natural crop, but it should still also carry a label saying that it has been altered uh, using a new breeding technique. Um, and this means that one, that there is an uh, additional safety check that would be done for uh, on the same level as, uh, as GMO products. Um, and secondly, that unless we know what the plant product is, we cannot make informed choices about whether it is good or bad. Because ultimately it's, I mean, the whole genetic modification, such as golden rice, for example, and flavor saver, they're all for the betterment of humans. They're, they are to make us eat better. They are to make sure that we don't have vitamin deficiencies. They are to make sure that there aren't enough crop losses, that crop production and manufacture is an efficient process. I mean, we are the final beneficiaries. So it is absolutely necessary that we know exactly what's going on in terms of GMO. We know exactly what the problems are. We know we are informed enough to make our own decisions. And unless we, and unless you do not ask for that information, um, it is quite likely that it will not be given to you. Yeah, um, public scrutiny is really important. Uh, the pressure that the public exerts on politicians, on scientists, on companies 
uh, is really important to make them uh, do the ethically sound thing, do the right thing, because uh, stuff like this has happened in other industries as well. Uh, right. I remember talking with Navneet and Shruti before about the cosmetics industry. Yeah, so um, now all uh, cosmetic products carry this label saying that they have not been tested on animals before. Uh, and this is really important because it, it marks a change in our ethical understanding of how cosmetic products should be uh, manufactured and processed. Exactly. And yeah. companies would do well to understand that the public realizes that they care about such things and they want to know how their products are being made. Um, so that's all we have, folks. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I'm Abhishek. I'm Shruti. And I'm Navneet. And we are signing off. As Inside Com.